This episode is brought to you by, well, actually to tell you the story, you're going to need some background information. In 14th century England, prostitution was tightly regulated. Now, brothels were illegal in the city of London, while prostitution wasn't necessarily. But this was because city authorities were more focused on arresting the pimps and procuresses who supported prostitutes than prostitutes themselves. And the reason they weren't so quick to prosecute prostitutes was because while prostitution was perceived as dangerous to the moral fabric of society, the crime of sodomy was considered way worse. Philosopher and theologian Thomas Aquinas, you've probably heard of him, uh, compared prostitution to a sewer controlling the flow of waste, saying if one were to remove it, one would fill the place with foulness. Now, the flow of waste in this instance is sodomy, which he then expanded on, saying, take away prostitutes from the world and you will fill it with sodomy. Right? If a man can't have sex with a woman whenever he wants, he'll immediately go have sex with a man, apparently. So, prostitution was seen as sort of a necessary evil. It couldn't be eliminated. It could be controlled. So, let's start our story. In Cheapside, London, which, what a terrible name. Anyways, December 1394, so we're going way back, a man named John Britby passed through the high road, catching the eye of a woman named Eleanor. She was bundled up because it was December and fucking freezing, um, but she still held his attention because very pretty. He approached her and asked her to have sex with him. Very blunt, this John Britby. Um, Eleanor negotiated a price for her labor, and then they found a way to a stall in Soper's Lane and had sex. City of London authorities were nearby, and soon the pair were arrested and imprisoned. So the woman introduced herself as Eleanor Reichner. She readily admitted to everything, agreed with Britby's account of the events, and hid absolutely nothing, told the entire story to the police. And by the entire story, I mean, she weaved a pretty interesting tale. It's difficult to talk about Eleanor without mentioning the fact that she was assigned male at birth. However, I won't be using her birth name, only the name she used to refer to herself, as that appears to be how she identified. If you look her up, people interchangeably call her by her birth name and Eleanor. I will not be doing that. I'm only going to be going with Eleanor. So when she was younger, she somehow fell in with a woman named Elizabeth Broderer, who gave her women's clothing and gave her the name Eleanor. While she was staying with Elizabeth, um, the latter developed an elaborate ruse where she would trick men into sleeping with her daughter. And then in the morning, she would switch her daughter with Eleanor and make the men believe they had slept with Eleanor. So it seems like this was sort of a way for her to, for her daughter Alice to have these sort of experiences without getting the reputation of being a prostitute. 
it does seem like the two probably worked together, um, Eleanor and Elizabeth's daughter Alice. And it's a way it was a way for Alice to maintain her public respectability. Um, and then there was another woman named Anna who was a sex worker, and she taught Eleanor how to have sex as a woman which is how Eleanor described it. One particular clever thing she did was crafting a ruse to rob the rector of Thaden Garnon, uh, a man called Philip. So he was a rector, so he was a clergyman. After having sex with the rector, she stole two gowns from him and he was initially trying to get her to give them back, but he gave up when she informed him she was the wife of an important man in the city. So this would have forced him to sue Reichner's supposed husband in court for the return of his property. So he just kind of gave up and Eleanor got to keep the dresses. So she was pretty smart. She knew how to work things in her favor. Um, she eventually left London and set out on her own for Oxford, where she found work as an embroideress, which was the trait Elizabeth had taught her. And it should be noted in this time that embroidery was something women did. You wouldn't necessarily find a man who was doing embroidery. So even when she was on her own, she was still doing traditionally women's work. And Eleanor continued to dress, work, and live as a woman after she left London. Unfortunately, she found less embroidery work than she had hoped for, so she once again focused on sex work. Eleanor also spent time in Burford as a tapster at a pub called The Swan, um, and this work as a barmaid was also something that traditionally only women did. So while she also was doing sex work in Burford, the court records based on her own testimony show she was only paid by half of the men she slept with. So whether she expected payment from them and didn't get it, or had a relationship with any of the men is unfortunately unknown because she didn't give it in her testimony, and the testimony we have is kind of a typed up version of her recollection. So anything she didn't tell the police, we unfortunately don't know. Once she was taken in by authorities, she freely told her entire story, beginning with her time with Elizabeth. Um, she even told them about some male cleric she had sex with, in addition to the Philip guy I mentioned earlier. And she told them how much men were willing to, you know, compensate her for her time. Um, she told them of the many men and women she slept with, some married, some who were nuns, and priests. It's interesting the way the sex is described in the court documents, and I'll tell you why. Because the court documents are written in Latin, and they use the Latin term of modo mulibri to describe the way she engaged in sex acts in a womenly manner and described the way men had sex with her as ut mulher, as with a woman, basically. Um, this is partially due to the lack of language in medieval London for the range of sexual behavior and identities. They describe sexual acts in one of two ways. You were either being penetrated or you were the one doing the penetrating. So the way they describe this does tell you something about her behavior, if only 
in a very stilted way. So it is unfortunate the only real story we have of Eleanor Reichner is based off of a court transcript from her arrest. However, it does show the reality of people living in this time period. Nowhere in Eleanor's admission does she say anyone treated her any differently from a cisgender female prostitute. So this seems to indicate she wasn't the only one at the time, just the only one who got caught. Since Eleanor's confession in plea and memoranda role for the Corporation of London was unearthed in the mid-90s by a woman named Sheila Lindenbaum, there have been shifting ideas over how to identify her, just as our understanding of queer identity has shifted since the mid-90s. Initially, she was referred to as a gay man, either cross-dressing as a way to sleep with other men or using Eleanor as a sort of drag persona. As further information came out, um, she admitted to having sex with women on more than one occasion. The consensus was to call her bisexual or queer, but still to identify her as, well, a male. Um, However, while it's not always wise to use modern language to refer to historical people, when it comes to identifying somebody, it's probably best to look into how they identified themselves. The only document of her life is her take on her womanhood and sexuality. Eleanor Reichner slept with both men and women. She worked as an embroideress, barmaid, and sex worker, and she was a woman. For this reason, it appears to be most correct to refer to her not as a cross-dressing gay man, but as a transgender bisexual woman. This is Out of History. we can walk the streets as ourselves and not be harassed by anybody just be ourselves be proud to be ourselves i think we need a radically new definition of what it means to be masculine it's a pretty fucked up society when the army gives me a medal for killing a man and a dishonorable discharge Hello, and hi. Welcome back to Out of History, a queer history podcast. If this is your first time listening, welcome. And if you're coming back, thank you. Something quick before we get started. I have been mulling about my purpose for this podcast over the past couple weeks and talking to a few people about what I do and why I'm doing this podcast and what the purpose is. So I just wanted to say something super quick before I get started into who we're talking about. And that is, here's my personal belief when it comes to this particular podcast and the people we are going to discuss in it. So while I believe it's important to be aware of the differences in how sexuality existed in other time periods and cultures, and believe me, the language and differences is vast compared to how we term things and see things and identify things today. Using modern terminology is generally inappropriate in an academic setting. However, our terminology is still a convenient way to speak about historical figures who would likely have these sorts of identities in our own time. For instance, 
Eleanor Reichner, who I just spoke of, would very likely have personally identified and spoken out as a transgender woman if she lived in this year of our Lord 2020. A historian should always be conscious of these sorts of differences. And that does not mean that it's wholly inappropriate to use our modern terminology in a casual setting for historical figures who had same-sex relationships or any type of queer relationships, especially since for many queer people, the historical figures that I talk about in this podcast can be a huge source of inspiration as well as a connection to the past. The ultimate goal here is to show our identity, not just our identity, but our presence. Throughout time, throughout culture, we've always been here. And if I can get one person to understand their connection to the past and to people like Eleanor Reichner and Eleanor Roosevelt, then I feel like I have succeeded in some way. Getting all of that out of the way, this week we're getting religious. I know a lot of people I've featured before in episodes have had strong religious beliefs, but this guy is responsible for what is probably the most famous religious book of all time. Well, at least like the most famous version of it. So none other than the King James Bible. That's right. You've seen it in pews. You've seen it in bookstores. You've seen it in your grandmother's bookshelf. But today we're going to chat about it. And we're not going to cover any of the 47 scholars involved in turning the Geneva Bible into something more approving of monarchy. This episode is focused on the man behind the Bible, King James himself. Sure, right now you probably think it's ridiculous for someone such as King James I to be anything other than a fuddy-duddy Puritan-esque monarch. We'll see how you feel by the end of this episode. I mean, surely the guy who commissioned the most famous version of the Bible of all time couldn't be anything other than the most boring by the books religious king ever, right? Do you know anything about King James I besides him being the one to commission the famous Bible edition? Okay, you might know him as the intended target of the gunpowder plot in 1605, aka the whole Guy Fox thing in November. You know, the reason those guys from 4chan wear those weird masks. But other than that, cool, let's change that. If you remember your world history class, I know, go back a little bit. You're probably familiar with Mary, Queen of Scots. You might know her as the daughter of Henry VIII and the Catholic Queen of England, who was cousins with Elizabeth I, the queen who would end up taking the throne from her. There's a whole Protestant Catholic thing going on with Elizabeth and Mary. And when Elizabeth finally got the throne, she got rid of Mary fairly quickly. Um, you know, the classic English monarch way, uh, you know, by beheading her. He took the throne when Elizabeth died, since she died childless, and he ruled over both Scotland and England. Technically, he's known as James VI of Scotland and James I of England, but for brevity's sake, I'm just going to call him King James or James, if that's cool with you. So unsurprisingly, he grew up not really knowing his parents considering his mom was locked up in the Tower of London and beheaded when he was very young, and his dad, Lord Darnley, was killed when he was a baby. His maternal grandparents died before he was born. 
His paternal grandfather was killed in a fight when James was still a young boy, and his paternal grandmother lived in England while he was growing up in Scotland. He had zero siblings. So yeah, grew up with basically no family. But don't start feeling bad for this guy, because we're about to have a real quick overview of exactly how the King James Bible came to be. That's right, if you've ever wondered, or even if you, you know, haven't, here is how the King James Bible went from a thought in the mind of a monarch to the de facto translation of the holiest of holy books. Let's take it back to 1603, which, in case you're wondering, is when King James took the throne from Elizabeth due to her, you know, death. Um, he was entering a fairly difficult and precarious situation. For one thing, his immediate processor on the throne, you know, his aunt, Queen Elizabeth I, had ordered the execution of his, you know, mother because Mary represented a Catholic threat to Elizabeth's Protestant reign. You know, that whole Catholic Protestant thing I mentioned earlier. So even though Elizabeth had established the supremacy of the Anglican Church, founded by her father, you know, King Henry VIII, the Anglican Church, which he started because he really wanted to divorce his first wife and the Catholic Church wouldn't let him. Anyways, the bishops of the Anglican Church now had to contend with rebellious Protestant groups like the Puritans, who are so much fun, and the Calvinists, who I think are now called Methodists. Anyways, these two groups, among others, were questioning the absolute power of the Anglican Church and, by proxy, the monarchy. By the time James took the throne, many people in England at the time were hearing one version of the Bible when they went to church and were reading from another when they were at home. This was because, you know, the printing press had been invented. But there were a ton of different translations out there. While one version of the holy texts, the so-called Bishop's Bible, was read in churches, the most popular version among Protestant reformers in England at the time was the Geneva Bible, which had been created by a group of Calvinist exiles during the bloody reign of James's mother, Mary, Queen of Scots. So he's walking to a whole mess caused by his family. And for him, the Geneva Bible posed a political problem since it contained certain annotations questioning not only the power of the bishops, but the power of the monarchy. So, in 1604, when a Puritan scholar proposed the creation of a new translation of the Bible at a meeting during a religious conference in Hampton Court, James surprised him and probably everyone else there by agreeing to it. James gave the translators instructions intended to ensure the new version would conform to the ecclesiology of and reflect the Episcopal structure of the Anglican Church and its belief in an ordained clergy and, you know, the monarch. Um, for James, who was an accomplished translator himself, and had actually translated a few of the books from the Greek Bible just in his spare time, um, this new Bible was not out of any sense of altruism. It was a way for him to solidify his power by solidifying both the Anglican Church and himself. 
Um, while we're on text by James, let's go over his book on kingship, which was called Royal Gift. Um, it was actually called something in Latin, but I'm not going to try and like say that because I'm not going to do that to you, but it basically translated to royal gift. You can trust me. Anyways, in this book, he lists sodomy among those horrible crimes which he are bound in conscience never to forgive. He also singled out sodomy in a letter to a man named Lord Burley, um, giving directions to judges who were to interpret the law broadly and were not to issue any pardons for people who had committed sodomy, saying in the letter, no more color may be left to judges to work upon their wits in that point. So I'm not making my case very well so far, am I? So far, we have a dude who's super into making sure the holy book says what he wants it to and is very into upholding the church. And he also is outspoken against sodomy on not one, but two verified occasions. So if I haven't lost you yet, let's get into his personal life. and We'll see if I can convince you. And we're just going to jump right in. There are three men who historians generally agree James was involved with in, you know, a sort of carnal way. He met the first one, an elegant Franco-Scottish courtier named Esme Stewart, the sixth Lord of Dabini, at the age of 14. Stewart was 37 years old at the time and married with children. So, gross. Nevertheless, the two grew super close. One royal informant wrote, The king altogether is persuaded and led by him, and is in such love with him as in the open sight of the people often he will clasp him around the neck with his arms and kiss him. Being French, as he was, Stuart brought a sense of sophistication and elegance that James didn't really have in the more rigid, cold, Moorish green, stony, damp, Scotland. Um, so the king propelled Stuart up the ranks, first making him a gentleman of the bedchamber, then the privy council, and finally Duke of Lennox. In Presbyterian Scotland, the thought of a Catholic duke was frowned on, so Stuart was forced to make a choice between his Catholic faith or his loyalty to James. And he chose James. Yeah, literally. Even had a public conversion so he could stay with James. Can you imagine changing your religion at such a tumultuous time to be with someone? Because this was before he was King of England. This is when he was still in Scotland. His aunt was busy being very Protestant in England, and they were busy being very Protestant in Scotland. And it was very not okay to be Catholic. But Esme Stewart chose to convert rather than leave James. However, most of the Scottish nobles refused to believe in his conversion and they were looking for a way to get Stewart out of the way. They did this by tricking James into going to Ruthven Castle in Perth, Scotland, not Perth, Australia, obviously. 
When he arrived, they kept him as a prisoner for 10 months and forced him to banish Stuart back to France. Um, The Duke agreed, but kept a secret correspondence with James. And in these letters, he says he gave up his family to dedicate himself entirely to James. And he prayed to die for James to prove the faithfulness which is engraved within my heart, which will last forever. And by the way, he meant that like pretty literally. The former Duke wrote, whatever might happen to me, I shall always be your faithful servant. You are alone in this world whom my heart is resolved to serve. And would to God that my breast might be split open so that it might be seen what is engraven therein. James was absolutely devastated by the loss of Esme Stewart, and Stewart wasn't doing much better. Besides being unable to go back to James, he was greeted with a very frosty reception by the French because, you know, his conversion to the Protestant faith. So those same Scottish nobles who had plotted to banish him assumed he would convert back to Catholicism once he was back in France. However, Stuart remained a Presbyterian until his death, and he left James his embalmed heart. So remember when I said literally? He literally wanted to show James the faithfulness engraved on his heart forever. I would love for somebody to leave me their embalmed heart. But I don't want that person to be like 30 something years older than me because anyways, sometime later, after marrying Anne of Denmark, having eight children with her and then causing the relationship to become so estranged that the two ended up living in separate establishments. Yeah, James the first is a great guy. He began another relationship this time with a 17 year old. At the time, James was 40 or 41, so I guess in a way he was trying to repeat the events of his first love. In 1607, so like shortly after his coronation, he was at a royal jousting contest and a young man by the name of Robert Carr, the son of Sir Thomas Carr of Ferniehurst, because everywhere in England has to sound like a goddamn joke. Anyways, he was knocked from a horse and broke his leg. James ran to help him, something absolutely against royal protocol, obviously. It's even said he carried Robert in his arms and asked for the best physicians to tend to him. During his recovery, James would visit Robert constantly to make sure he was healing properly. And like the moment he was healed, he made him a gentleman of the bedchamber. Again, now, while Robert was serving under James, he was noted for his handsome appearance and limited intelligence. So was Robert Carr the original himbo? Maybe. Definitely should be one of the most famous ones. So after making him a gentleman of the bedchamber, he also made him a knight of the garter, a privy counselor, and Viscount Rochester. But soon, Robert will come to James with a request. He was in love with Frances Howard, a beautiful young married woman, and he wanted her to be able to divorce her husband so they could marry each other. And possibly because of his need to please Carr, so he definitely wanted to keep Carr happy because that was his favorite at the time. So he stacked the court with bishops who would allow Frances to divorce her husband and marry Robert. And then as a wedding present, he was named Earl of Somerset. By 1615, the two had begun to fall out. And in a letter, James complained about 
Robert, saying, among other things, he was creeping back and withdrawing yourself from lying in my chamber, notwithstanding my many hundred times earnest soliciting you to the contrary. So James was like totally fine with him being married, but he was like, you got to spend time with me too. I'm the king. Also, I made you who you are. Right around the time they were having their fallout, a public scandal erupted when the underkeeper of the tower revealed Francis Howard had poisoned Sir Thomas Overbury, a bishop who had opposed their marriage. James, angered over, you know, Robert's obvious attachment to his wife, exploited the opportunity and insisted they face trial over the accusation. In turn, Carr threatened James, saying he would reveal the details of their relationship if he was put to trial. And then during the trial, while he was testifying before the Lords in Westminster Hall, two men were posted beside him by order of the king, prepared to muffle him with cloaks should he begin to divulge delicate matters. In the end, however, they weren't needed. For whatever reason, Carr went back on what he said and didn't reveal any details about his relationship with James. He also refused to admit any guilt. However, his wife confessed and they both were sentenced to death. James, out of his whatever sense of mercy, commuted the sentence and they were only imprisoned in the Tower of London for seven years, after which they were pardoned and allowed to retire to a country estate together. Okay, so now we're going to get to the man who most historians believe was not only James's favorite, you know, favorite, but also his one true love, George Villiers. A young nobleman James met right when his relationship with Carr was coming to an end. There are even some historians who believe the other noblemen around James set him up specifically with George to get his mind off of Carr since George came from higher stock and was, you know, better looking. James gave him the nickname Steeny after St. Stephen, who was described as having the face of an angel. Which makes sense because at the time, Villiers was often said to be the most beautiful man in Europe. He had dark chestnut curly hair, oh hey, me too, a pointed beard of golden brown, clear skin, fine chiseled features, dark blue eyes, and the graceful carriage of the ideal courtier. So basically, in the eyes of James's court, George was like a huge step up from Robert. And like the other male favorites before him, James advanced George's status pretty quickly until he became the Duke of Buckingham. So the two men were kind of notorious for kissing and caressing each other in public. Francis Osborne, an English essayist during the time, said, In wanton looks and wanton gestures, they exceeded any part of womanhood. The kissing them after so lascivious a mode in public and upon the theater, as it were, of the world prompted many to imagine some things done in the tearing house, which is like a dressing room, that exceed my expression no less than they do my experience. As a result of their PDA, in 1617, a moral debate was conducted at the Privy Council in which they asked King James to explain the nature of his relationship with George. And the members of the council expressed their concern about it, especially since George was so high up in the court. James, being the honest and open person he was, and not 
really giving a fuck about the fact that he felt he could do whatever he wanted, openly admitted his love for George, the Duke of Buckingham, but in a very smart way to kind of shut up everybody talking behind his back. He said, you may be sure that I love the Earl of Buckingham more than anyone else and more than you who are here assembled. I wish to speak in my own behalf and not to have it thought to be a defect. For Jesus Christ did the same, and therefore I cannot be blamed. Christ had John, and I have George. So, pretty cute and a nice way to get people to shut the fuck up. So, good on you, James. Speaking of his way with words... He and George had quite the correspondence. If you're familiar with this podcast, if you've listened to any of the other episodes, you know I love reading letters. So I'm going to read some James wrote to George. Here's one he left for George on the night George wed Lady Catherine Manor in 1620, a marriage James actually arranged and made happen. My only sweet and dear child... Thy dear dad sends thee his blessing this morning and also to his daughter. The Lord of heaven sends you a sweet and blithe wakening, all kind of comfort in your sanctified bed, and bless the fruits thereof, that I may have sweet bedchamber boys to play me with. And this is my daily prayer, sweetheart. When thou risest, keep thee from importunity of people that may trouble thy mind that at meeting I may see thy white teeth shine upon me, and so bear me comfortable company in my journey. And so God bless thee, hoping thou will not forget to read over again my former letter. Okay, so yeah, obviously, let's just get this out of the way. The dad-child thing is creepy, but it was James's way of showing he still had superior status over George, and his way of saying that even though he was married to a woman, he still had obligations to James, if you know what I'm saying. And if you want to, you can kind of see it as a sugar daddy thing, and I can guarantee that is the way James saw it. Anyways, here's another one from December of 1623, which is only slightly less creepy with the daddy-child thing. My only sweet and dear child... Notwithstanding of your desiring me not to write yesterday, yet had I written in the evening if, at my coming out at the park, such a drowsiness had not come upon me as I was forced to set and sleep in my chair half an hour, and yet I cannot content myself without sending you at this present, praying God that I may have a joyful and comfortable meeting with you, and that we may make at this Christmas a new marriage ever to be kept hereafter." For God so love me as I desire only to live in this world for your sake and that I had rather live banished in any part of the earth with you than live a sorrowful widow's life without you, my sweet child and wife, and grant that ye may ever be a comfort to your dear dad and husband. Yeah, so more of the sugar daddy stuff. And then also just straight up referring to George Villiers as his wife. Super casual. Um, in 1623, a French comedic actor addressed an obscene poem, uh, Marquise de Buckingham. Sure, whatever. I definitely pronounced that wrong. Whatever. It's an obscene poem. It said in English, because I am not going to say this in French, Apollo with his songs debauched young Hyacinthus, just as Corridon fucked Amentus. So Caesar did not spurn boys, 
one man fucks Monsieur Le Grand de Bellegarde, who is a friend of the guy who wrote the poem. Another fucks the Comte de Tonnerre, and it is well known that the King of England fucks the Duke of Buckingham. So, like I said before, they weren't exactly, like, uh, discreet about it. And during their time together, George became good friends with Anne of Denmark, the aforementioned wife of James, who he, ugh, he didn't treat her well. He did not treat her well at all. Um, but she addressed George in affectionate letters, begging him to be always true to her husband. And if all that isn't enough, for further evidence, they were doing a renovation around 2008 in Apethorpe Hall, where James and George both met and lived, and they found a secret passage connecting their bedchambers together. They definitely weren't playing Nightcrawlers. Well, they might have been, but probably a different version than the kind Charlie Kelly plays. Now, let's be clear. King James was not a good guy. He definitely was a do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do when it came to homoerotic relationships, like many people in power, honestly. And when it came to the people he was with later in his life, once he was king, he was one of those people who would absolutely lord it over them and want to remind them he made them, he put them in the position they were in, and he could take it away at any time. So I am not in any way trying to paint him out to be a good guy just because he was clearly gay. However, he is a part of our history, and hopefully the next time we have someone with his level of power in office, they can empathize with people like them and institute positive change instead of putting together a holy book that's still used as a way to harm the LGBT plus community today. We need more people like Harvey Milk and less people like King James the first. Thanks for listening to this episode, guys. If you enjoyed it, please, please, please uh, feel free to rate and review and share this podcast with your friends. And if you would like to, you can definitely follow me on social media on Instagram at outofhistory.podcast. I post lots of fun history memes and stuff we don't cover on the podcast and teasers for future episodes. You can also shoot me an email at out.of.queer.history at gmail.com if you'd like to shoot me a message or talk about somebody you'd like to see on a future episode or disagree with somebody I've covered on a past episode. And I, of course, would like to thank historians like David Bergeron and Richter Norton and every other historian who is looking into figures like King James and telling their stories and showcasing the part of history that we don't really talk about and that should be talked about more, especially in the time we live in. Because history is a lot gayer than you think. And don't forget, you are creating your own history every single day. So make it a good one. And I'll talk to you guys in a couple weeks that in hopes that someday there'll be no need to demonstrate the right to make love to anybody you want, any way you want, or you gotta start somewhere.